Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for the stories making news and moving markets in the APAC region. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. Joining us now in our studios in Hong Kong is David Chu, Bloomberg China economist. David, we mentioned there that uh, that cut in the uh, mortgage reference rate, uh, the five-year loan prime rate of 25 basis points, while being greater than expected, was met uh, with kind of, um, I don't know if it's a yawn or a little bit of disdain even in the market. So um, uh, is that fair? Well, uh, <laughs> I have to say that uh, it was not such a big surprise uh, to the market uh, because the PBOC has had delivered some of the indication uh, via some media uh, before uh, the, the reduction in the five-year LPR. But actually, I have to say, people didn't expect that it was cut so much mm. uh, because uh, we expected that it, it could be five or ten bips, but it turned out to be uh, 25. Well, I have some reasons for the 25 uh, basis point cut. Uh, although the base, uh, the policy rate, which is the one-year MLF rates was steady uh, because in last year, uh, August, when the PBOC cut the uh, policy rate by 15 bips, the, uh, the five-year LPR remained steady. It didn't oh. change. So that it allowed the, the, the five-year LPR to have uh, at least 15 uh, basis points to, to cut in this year. So uh, another reason, uh, apparently um, the commercial banks add another 10 bips for the, for the reduction. Uh, so that it totaled to be uh, 25. So uh, one thing uh, we are talking about, we are thinking is that whether this can uh, stimulate the chi- or raise China's housing market. That is the key question. Because uh, as we just said, the, the five-year LPR is the base or the benchmark for the mortgage rate. And apparently that uh, it seems that the, the authorities are trying to help the, the housing market. But to be honest, um, we are not so optimistic on this uh, because if you look at the housing market in China, it has been slipping uh, over the past two years. Mm. And uh, the sentiment in the market is very weak, especially in the lower tier cities such as the tier three and tier four cities. So, uh, and also uh, we see the oversupply in the housing market. So that putting all this together, we think, yes, it will help, but the help should be very limited. I'm wondering whether anyone is concerned about the pressure that this would put on banks. I mean, obviously, when you lower interest rates, it puts a little bit of pressure on your margins. Is, is that a chief concern or will it be, let's call it a sacrifice that has to be made as authorities try to rescue or uh, unwind this property crisis? Well, I, I agree with you that um, uh, the, the banks are not so happy with this. Actually, uh, in January, I had a travel in Beijing and Shanghai and to see some bankers. And they told me that they were worried about the, the narrowing of their interest margin. Um, uh, but it seems that, as you said, the, it is a more a political decision to, uh, to, to press the uh, 
the, the interest margin further uh, because I think maybe uh, <clears throat> the leaders think that the banking sector should do something to help the economy as a whole. Yeah, it's about affordability. And even, you know, pressure is building here in Hong Kong uh, for the government uh, to relax some of the restrictions on buying homes that we've seen for almost a decade now. And we're even seeing that pressure coming from pro-China parties. Uh, And and we're talking about things like the stamp duties, uh, some of the friction that's in there, for instance, also the size of the down payment. In some cases, you have to put 50% down. Then you have to pay a 15% stamp duty, and it's on and on and on. Uh, Do you think that the time is is ripe now for both Hong Kong and China to think about relaxing some of these restrictions? Uh, Actually, um, I think it's not about the timing because uh, for both – especially for, for mainland China, they have been cutting the down payment ratio and also the, the mortgage rate and also relaxed the, the, the home purchase restrictions. But you have to ask yourself, is it working? <laughs> yeah, that is the question, whether it works. But if, uh, honestly, uh, it, it hasn't worked so much in, in China. Do you think things are so desperate now that there's going to be a major initiative unveiled at the National uh, People's Congress, which I guess is set for early March? Might authorities wait for for that moment in time to unveil something that's a little bit more sweeping in scope? I mean, clearly, there there is just declining sentiment, not just as it relates to the property market, but the equity market as well. Uh, yes, uh, I think um, for both the uh, the, the, the housing sector uh, or housing market and the equity market, people have the same concern. It is whether China is still uh, still views the growth as the top priority. Uh, I think that uh, would be a signal that we can see uh, from the uh, from the, um, uh, the, the, the the People's Congress in the coming months. But to be honest, we I don't think that even. Even the government or the authorities released the signal that we still view it very important. Um, I really doubt how much the market can buy it. I'm going to, going to ask you a question. Uh, you're an economist, and you're going to say, oh, boy, you know, that's kind of a political question. But it seems like what we have here is an issue that comes down to societal considerations versus economic considerations. Um, we understand that a lot of what President Xi Jinping is trying to do is good for the common man. But that may not be, in the shorter term, what's good for the economy. How do you decide? Uh, yeah, that is uh, kind of uh, – it could be a trade-off. Because uh, if you want to make the common prosperity, or in other words, you want to help the, the common people. Well, you want to make property more affordable to the average person, but then it slows down the economy to the point where the average person may not even have a job. You know, what makes more sense? That is the question, you know, um, because I think what ca- caused the, the, the pain, uh, it was the timing. Because uh, we, I think, personally, I think it was a bit late uh, for the government to do so. They should have done that 10 years ago to do it. But if you leave the, co- the problem to today, you must have some price for, for that, right? <laughs> David, I'm wondering whether or not you could see a world where authorities, let's say at the central bank, begin to adopt something that uh, both Japan and the U.S. have used, where the central bank has used its balance sheet through quantitative easing to address the problems that, that China is facing with so much bad credit right now. Is that something that you, you think they might experiment with? 
Well, I have to say that I have been uh, asked about this question um, at least a dozen of times over the past year. But I have to say that uh, for China, uh, the PBOC always have some quantitative uh, uh, tools. So when the PBOC is doing easing or tightening, it is doing so in both the price and the quantitative side. For example, the PBOC can raise or cut the triple R, which is definitely a quantitative tool. And also the PBOC can do something to inject more money via the MLF or the PSL. That two tools are also quantitative. So for the PBOC, it is not a question of whether quantitative easing or not. They always do that. Yeah. All right, David. Thanks very much. Uh, enjoy the session. Uh, the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Quite a lot. David Chu, Bloomberg China economist. Joining us now is Shu Liren, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, to take a look at market sentiment on Chinese and Japanese markets. She wrote a piece citing two articles from Barron's, and one of them talked about how Toyota Motor Company was looking like a growth stock, whereas in China, it's a totally different story. Let's get to Shuli. Thanks very much, Shuli, for joining us here on the program. Is that still the case, even after the big run-up in Japanese shares, uh, and you know, would how long can this continue? We don't know, but uh, it, it does seem to be the case, especially uh, early this year, January and February. Like uh, 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 over the last decade, basically a lot of global investors have uh, plowed their money into Chinese stocks. A lot of them trading in Hong Kong, right? And everyone knows that the China's economy has some structural issues that cannot be solved within perhaps even a year or two. So that's why they're looking everywhere else. And India has become very expensive. So, of course, Japan is the other big liquid market that foreign investors can go to. That's why they're going. When I'm listening to you, what comes to mind is the corporate reform that has taken place in Japan, which may be underpinning the rally that we have seen in, in Japanese equities. On, on the other hand, this the situation in China where the regulatory regime is so mercurial and shifting, such a lack of clarity on what policy is going to be for the foreseeable future. Does that come into play in any way, do you think, that dichotomy? Yes, absolutely. I mean, like in China, like I think investors at this point, they're not even looking for stimulus. They're just looking for some predict uh, predictability and the stability. I mean, with Japan, the corporate reform story is actually quite old. It started with Abenomics basically a decade ago. Um, and I do want to say that uh, Japan, um, you know, the, the, the uh, investment narratives that we are seeing on Japan these are not new stories. They have been around for a decade. It's just that the investors being burned by China in such a dramatic fashion that they're willing to give Japan a second look. And it's not clear to me that Japan can finally come out of this uh, deflationary environment. I remember you from your days at Barron's. Uh, that was more than a decade ago. Um, and yes. uh, yeah, <laughs> so this piece about uh, about you know Japan looking like a growth story and China looking like a value play. You say yep. that it's a value trap, not a value play, uh, particularly, I suppose, because of policy 
Uh, and yep. uh, is it is it likely to change sometime soon? I mean, you are starting to see almost daily developments with the policymakers in China. Now, do they realize it? I think there is some good trend. For instance, the new uh, securities watchdog, he sounds a little bit more humble. He's willing to hear opinions from market participants, and that could be a good trend. Um, but stru- uh, structurally, China's property sector uh, used to account for 25% of the GDP. And structurally, this property sector has not found its bottom. I mean, let's just compare the home prices, right? From peak to trial to now, basically, uh, home prices have come down only about 20%. During the U.S. Uh, subprime crisis in 20, uh, 2008, the price came down by 40%. So we just feel that there is not bottom yet. So regardless of how uh, the Chinese government changes its tone, uh, economy is economy, right? Hmm. It's the fundamentals. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting is to, after 30 years, we're getting an indication that Japan is leaving a deflationary trap. And it seems like China is now firmly, yes. uh, you know, under one or one is firmly underway in China right now. Yes, but I do want to say that uh, it looks like Japan is coming out of the deflationary trap, but not quite, right? Like uh, if this the, this inflation is uh, uh, ongoing uh, globally, I mean, Japan's, uh, it's unclear how much uh, inflation uh, Japan can have. And also global investors are now expecting Japan to, Japan's economy to grow slowly, but not so fast that the, the Bank of Japan changes its quantitative, quantitative easing. And that is a very blue sky scenario. The policymakers in China are, are hinting that deflation has just about run its course. Uh, do you believe them? No. <laughs> I mean, uh, at this point, like uh, China's uh, statistics is all very uh, opaque, right? Like uh, we don't know what's in the con- uh, like uh, CPI basket. Um, but just from anecdotal uh, experiences, everything is uh, kind of on sale in China. Like if you go to restaurants, there are always discounts, deals, you know, home prices, secondary home sales. Um, there are always, uh, you know, some kind of uh, under the table um, coupons and etc. So we don't believe that. No Chinese believes that. <laughs> so before you were at Barron's, you were here in the U.S. working for a major investment bank whose name I will not mention. Uh, so you have, have some familiarity with the banking industry overall. And I'm wondering, is there a way to compare and contrast what is likely to happen for Japanese banks versus Chinese banks, given the situation that you've been kind of laying out for us? I think with Japanese banks, they're uh, their biggest uh, obstacle is, uh, uh, I mean, there has been no um, interest rate margin for Japanese banks because it's zero percent for for the longest time, right? So, so their their problem is that uh, some of them have gone overseas, like you know, more brokerages as uh, as well, Nomura, etc., and then they could have uh, exposure to to the uh, weakening uh, global. Uh, commercial real estate. With Chinese banks, their problem is that their interest uh, rate margins are, have, are also compressing because the Chinese government wants the banks to uh, give out loans very cheaply. But, um, you know, that, that really contracts the Chinese banks' profit margins and that, that could hurt their capitalization ratios as well. So if we look at China and try to figure out a way of getting out of this, uh, you, you think that you know, deflation is still pretty well entrenched and that households are, you know, they're saving, they're not spending. Um, 
Is there a way to transfer some of that wealth um, to households so that they can feel more comfortable? You know, we often think of tax cuts. That's not often considered in China. What about some other measures uh, that would, would um, you know, move capital into the household sector? I, I think at this point, uh, it's the sentiments. And I'm not sure about this because China has no opinion polls. But I have a feeling that the households are just have doing this revenge non-consumption because they, they were burned quite badly during the three years of COVID lockdowns, right? And, and like um, just anecdotally, some people that uh, uh, I know who have no financial issues, they're still not willing to spend. They just think, why why am I contributing to the economy? Like the government can, can take care of everything. Like it's almost kind of a <laughs> revenge towards <laughs> the lockdowns. So if that that is indeed the case, I mean, like we have to talk about psychology instead of concrete measures. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Absolutely. That's a fascinating point, Shirley. Thank you. One of our big stories in the past 24 hours, Capital One Financial agreeing to buy Discover in a $35 billion all-stock deal. The deal would create the largest U.S. credit card company by loan volume. But there is a catch, and joining us now is Adam Haig, Bloomberg Finance Editor, to discuss more on this story. I find this a fascinating story because uh, it, it goes to a lot of things. Business model, it could help Capital One compete with Amex here and lower its cost by not having to process through MasterCard and Visa. Extra competition for MasterCard and Visa. You just go on and on. Of course, there's the antitrust concerns as well. Maybe we can uh, deal with that first. Uh, is this the type of story, Adam, that you think ultimately gets blocked by a Biden administration that is sort of anti-mega merger? Yeah, well, the, the the thing to watch, of course, is the timing of, of when any block would, would take place. Obviously, we're in an election year um, in the U.S., and there's a lot of political capital now going to go into scrutinizing this deal. And we've seen already um, Senator Elizabeth Warren, of course, come out quite quickly uh, and make some quite clear comments um on, on Twitter to, to, to raise the argument about how this not only threatens financial stability and, and reduces competition, she said, but but raises costs for Americans is a is a you know a typical um, kind of language that you would expect uh, to get this into the political discourse to try and examine some of the issues that that we have. So the next few months will be will be crucial but the timing whether this ends up getting postponed and is a, is a post election um, decision or not i think is is crucial there's obviously so many hurdles still to get through so this could still drag on for quite some time i think the strategy is also interesting if you're capital one and up until this point you've been catering to a lot of some subprime borrowers this is an opportunity because discover is traditionally kind of uh, gone after those of kind of a higher credit quality. But one of the things that I think is equally as interesting here is that Discover has kind of put itself in a very weak situation. I mean, 
I think the stock has been decimated over a period of time. There were a lot of uh, concerns here about management. Um, and, and I'm wondering whether or not Capital One is basically capitalizing on another company's uh, weakness. Well, that could that could be um, be be a lot of truth in that, and, and and obviously you see that often with with M and A transactions where um, you know the company being acquired has been through quite some turmoil, and so the advertised kind of premium on on, the, on this deal is you know about thirty percent of that closing price on February sixteen. But of course, you look at what's been happening to that stock, and it's it's pretty clear the position that that they are in. So. So yes, um, I think there's a large degree of truth in that analysis that um, they are, you know, Capital One is coming in at a time of of, of real um, weakness for the company that they're buying. But of course, well, uh, them there may still be, you know, number of synergies, a number of kind of things that they can do to to for a long term shareholder for that still to be very very re- rewarding. Discover has struggled in trying to compete with Visa and MasterCard, uh, let alone someone like American Express. Um, so this would seem to be, a, you know, almost a stroke of genius in the sense that the two together um, could could be a formidable competitor to the other two. And I wonder whether that runs a little counter to the kind of knee-jerk reaction that we saw from Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren. They, they couldn't possibly have had uh, time to analyze uh, you know, the impact on the marketplace. Uh, you have a duopoly, a virtual duopoly now with MasterCard and Visa on the processing of this. Even Capital One has to run its processing through them. Uh, you know, like you said, maybe some time, maybe some cooler heads? Well, in, indeed, and I think that goes to the heart of this. There's a lot of nuance in the analysis of, of, of the competition here. So so there's a number of different things at play, and, of course, the distribution element for, for Discover is, is key. But how how this addresses or changes the competitive landscape in the different sectors of the economy in which these companies operate, I think, is key. It's not, a, it's not kind of a, a one... Uh, size-fits-all competition argument. There's lots of nuance and there's lots of kind of detail in there. And indeed, the quick response that we saw from from some of these uh, politicians speaks to that idea that, that you raised that perhaps maybe we haven't gone through the detail. Let's just take a step back. Let's analyze really what this could do to the competitive landscape before reaching a conclusion whether this is anti-competitive or not. I think that's very interesting also because Dick Durbin, I think, is trying to move forward legislation on the Senate side uh, to foster competition among credit card networks, to Brian's point right now, right, that is pretty much controlled by Visa and MasterCard. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, these are these are long term. These are things that will have long term impact on 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 this sector. So we shouldn't jump to to quick conclusions. We should really look at the detail and examine just how this will impact um, the sector and how this will play out. Because ultimately, um, consumers need to feel um, that they would um, benefit from this long term. That that they need they need that kind of sense of comfort um, for this deal to get done. I guess the response in the marketplace, uh, you know, you have investors really running through the numbers, uh, and it does it does inform a little. MasterCard, MasterCard down 3.5%, Visa down as well, Discover up. So, obviously, you know, it looks like it's uh, almost like a, a, a knight in shining armor coming to the rescue. Uh, Discover gained 12.6%. And for Capital One, well, little changed. Uh, so, what do you read into some of these uh, stock price movements, Adam? 
Well, I think some of those moves are bigger than others, right? So the discovery 12, 13% or so move is, is pretty clear. We don't, probably don't need to say that much about that. But the, you know, some of the, the visa one you mentioned, you know, it's, they're small moves, really. Um, they're, they're not, they're not, I, they don't appear to me to suggest that this is an investor base that has decided that this is definitely a net negative for, um, for, for MasterCard in any meaningful way. So uh, I think we should just, you know, pause for thought slightly and, and just okay. just understand what these stocks do over, over the coming days. I don't think it's all been yeah. decided in, in the most recent trade. All right, Adam. Thanks so much. Adam Haig, Bloomberg Finance Editor with us live. This has been the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.